There we go. Oh, welcome. Hi, this is Sue Bostrom. I'm at VoiceCon here with all of our participants in Orlando. Welcome, Vice President Gore. Hey, John, how are you doing? Hi, Sue. Thank you. Hello, Lawrence. <laughs> and Lawrence, I, of course we don't want to forget you and all of your friends out there in Bedford Lakes in the UK. I just want to draw your attention before we get started, as all of you can see on your telepresence rooms uh, there around the world, I've just been showing the audience here in Orlando on the slide on the presentation that we can actually share together via telepresence exactly how we're all making this work with the network as a platform. So with that, I think we're ready to get the discussion started. I know folks here in Orlando have been looking forward to it, and I'll turn it over to you, Lawrence. So, um, and welcome Orlando to this uh, unique uh, event. Uh, welcome also to those people who are watching on the web um, and watching in uh, via Sally Presses. Now, here in London, we're hosting uh, a live debate uh, using Cisco's telepresence technology to connect some of the leading commentators uh, on climate change in four locations on two continents. Um, and we have two live audiences as, as well. We're also simulcasting globally to thousands of people on the web and to telepresence rooms in three continents. So let's get down to business and I'll start by introducing uh, our panelists. Uh, first of all, uh, someone who, as they say, show business hardly needs any introduction, uh, <laughs> Mr. Al Gore. Uh, former Vice President Al Gore, nowadays your chairman of Current TV, uh, which as a television journalist I'm really interested in, a station for young people based on citizen uh, journalism, citizen reporting. Uh, you're also chairman of Generation Investment Management, a uh, firm that invests in sustainable projects, um, and uh, you're chair of the Alliance for Climate Protection, a non-profit organization uh, struggling to get to grips with uh, this thorny issue. Um, in business terms, and I didn't know this, it kind of surprises me, you're a member of the board of directors of uh, Apple, a senior advisor to Google, uh, and a partner with a venture capital firm, Kleiner, Perkins, Hallfield, and Byers. But of course, what people know you for is your two best-selling books, uh, Earth and the Balance and An Inconvenient Truth, uh, which creates, a, I think, a unique uh, double, uh, because I can think of no other person in any other field of uh, endeavor who has starred in an Oscar-winning movie and won the Nobel Peace Prize that you did in 2007 with the uh, IPCC. Um, you won't remember this, but I met you some years ago at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992 when you gave a press conference as leader of the Congressional Delegation. For many people, that's where the struggle against climate change started. Mr. Gore, you were there. Turning now to uh, Sam Jose and to, uh, uh, to John Chambers, who was, of course, uh, chairman and CEO of, of Cisco. Uh, you joined Cisco in 1991, um, and I'm told that you've uh, grown the business from uh, revenues of $1.3 billion to a startling $35 billion. Uh, before Cisco BC, you worked for Wagner Laboratories and for uh, IBM. Uh, you've been widely praised by government leaders uh, for three qualities. Uh, visionary strategy, uh, your ability to drive an entrepreneurial culture, and I'm told warm-hearted but uh, straight-talking approach. Um, you've received numerous awards, including the first ever Clinton Global Citizen Award in, 19, in 2007. 
You're also active in lots of philanthropic and educational initiatives, including the 21st Century Schools Project, uh, aimed at helping uh, children in the uh, Gulf Coast region uh, who were affected by hurricane Katrina. Back to Orlando and to uh, Sue. Um, I believe you've got two and a half thousand people somewhere out there behind you, Sue. Um, you started, uh, you're, or you're now Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Cisco, uh, and you're Head of uh, Worldwide Government Affairs. Uh, you've had over 10 years with Cisco and 20 years experience in uh, strategic marketing, and you're responsible for developing and communicating Cisco's vision and strategy through all the usual tricks, uh, all the usual techniques, positional, positioning, branding, advertising, and so on. You're also, however, responsible for Worldwide Government Affairs, uh, which develops and executes uh, Cisco's public policy agenda. Well, down to business, and the first question I think uh, fittingly goes to Mr. Gore. Uh, your passion on this issue is well known. Uh, I think many people here would like to know your assessment of where we are today. What are the successes, if any, and what are the challenges that remain in front of us? Well, thank you, Lawrence and uh, Sue, and to my good friend John Chambers, thank you for inviting me to participate today. And hello to everybody gathered uh, in, at VoiceCon and also at London. You're not far from my partners and my office in London at Generation Investment Management over on Cork Street. Um, and giving an assessment, uh, Lawrence, in response to your question, uh, there's good news and bad news. In the last couple of years, we have seen a, a significant change in public opinion with more and more people recognizing the uh, clear evidence that we are facing a planetary emergency, even though the phrase still sounds shrill to many ears. The global scientific community has been practically screaming from the rooftops. Uh, 3,000 scientists from over 100 countries, all of them at the very top of their fields, they're the most respected by their peers, have worked for 15 years and have issued four unanimous reports. And the last one, uh, they asked them, uh, how certain of you are you of this? And they said 99%. And then the governments, in reviewing their work, said, oh, that's uh, we're not, we're not sure we want to go out with that, so they compromised and said we're more than 90% certain. Uh, the, the evidence uh, from the graphs and charts and streams of numbers uh, are one thing, but the ice is melting, the storms are getting stronger, the floods are getting bigger, the droughts are getting more pronounced and more destructive, sea level is rising. The, um, Latest measurements of the North Polar Ice Cap made just after the fall equinox, uh, September 21st, shows that in the words of one of the leading ice scientists in the world, uh, Conrad Steffens, uh, the Arctic is screaming, he said, it's fallen off a cliff. Uh, other researchers have calculated that at the current rate, the, the entire North Polar Ice Cap could be completely gone in summers in as little as five years. And that's just so incredibly shocking. So the sooner we can halt this uh, destructive process, the better, uh, and start the recovery process. And we can start the recovery process. Uh, alongside denial, uh, despair is the other enemy of progress and hope. Uh, and so the, the evidence is overwhelming, and more and more people are seeing it and responding to it. However, 
when you give people a list of priorities, say 25 is what the pollsters often do, and uh, include the, the climate crisis on that list and ask them to rank these uh, challenges in order of the uh, priority they'd like to attach to them. The climate crisis consistently ranks at number 24 or 23 out of, out of 25. Uh, and the same uh, polls and produce the same results in the United Kingdom and uh, in other countries around the world. Uh, so what is needed is a new sense of urgency. And uh, businesses are beginning to take leadership roles. Not all, of course. Some of the largest carbon polluters are still playing a very destructive, uh, even unethical role. But most business leaders are way ahead of uh, political leaders. And uh, that, that's, that's the good news, because when the market starts to shift, uh, that really makes a difference. And interestingly, uh, when business leaders take a hard look at their own companies and ask uh, their managers and engineers, uh, how can we cut back on CO2, when they do a, a very thorough analysis, depending on the kind of business it is, the majority of them right away uh, isolate travel as one of the big uh, variable costs where uh, discretionary CO2 emissions are concerned. And so people have been waiting for uh, a new uh, video conferencing, uh, teleconferencing uh, uh, option to come along that would be realistic enough to substitute for um, a much larger fraction of the in-person meetings that has people flying all over the planet. Uh, and uh, I don't own stock in Cisco. I wish I did, John. Uh, I, I'm not on. Fix that. Well, I, I'm sure it's a, it's traded publicly, uh, but I'm not uh, paid for an endorsement. I'm not uh, here for any kind of remunerative purpose. I'm here because I'm impressed by this system, and it's close to my home here in Nashville, and it's easy to use. And uh, I think this is uh, really uh, uh, the most realistic uh, effort I've seen thus far, and. Uh, I, I think that a lot of businesses are going to find this very uh, attractive. And when you start reducing CO2 and you start uh, looking at what works to cut down on travel, this is clearly uh, one of the options I think is going to play a big role. Uh, and uh, John, uh, you've been a public-spirited guy and your company has uh, done a lot of good work in the Middle East and elsewhere. And uh, without going into details of stuff that's not public yet. Uh, I went to uh, John and his colleagues at Cisco uh, with an idea on how uh, uh, this uh, technology could be used in some of the deliberations that are so important to trying to get an agreement on reducing CO2, and they just responded like that. I was very impressed. Really do appreciate it very much, and it's still in uh, process, but uh, during that, I, I had the chance to uh, see this new updated version I'd seen earlier uh, uh, efforts in the past. This is just spectacular, John, and uh, I, I think it's a, a tremendous advance, and uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, the opportunity to use it uh, more myself, uh, and just to be able to, uh, instead of flying to Orlando or flying to San Jose or flying to London today, uh, I just came a few blocks from my house here in Nashville, and I really feel like I'm uh, uh, in a meeting of the minds in uh, four, four different locations, and I guess others are plugged in uh, also. So uh, 
the good news, uh, Lawrence, just to summarize, is that we're beginning to see movement, but not nearly enough. And today, as the Earth turns this 24-hour period, we human beings will put another 70 million tons of global warming pollution into the Earth's atmosphere as if it's an open sewer. And it's trapping more of the outgoing infrared radiation that's absorbed from the sun every day. Uh, and the planet has a fever, and the fever's going up. And if your baby has a fever, you don't, you know, you go to the doctor. And if the doctor says it, it keeps going up, it's not going away, it's not a passing bug, you've got to do something. You don't say, well, doctor, I read a science fiction novel the other day, and I'm just not sure you're right. Uh, you may want a second opinion. Well, the world's gotten a second opinion, and a third opinion, and a fourth opinion, and each one of them has come unanimously from the greatest scientists in the world, and they're waiting for us to respond. And uh, political leaders are uh, too often paralyzed into inaction because they're scared that the powerful constituencies, including uh, average folks who can't imagine uh, what kinds of changes are going to be necessary to stop burning all this fossil fuel all the time, um, they're scared of the, of the uh, kickback on it. But if we make up our minds to act, there's no, <laughs> there's no doubt that we can do this. We've got the renewable technologies uh, that we need. Uh, we just need to get uh, the, the political will to act. We need to change our light bulbs, but much more importantly, we need to change our laws. We need to take the changes, take the steps in our own lives, and individual businesses uh, need to do so. Uh, but we as citizens of our respective countries need to really be activists in urging uh, a, an adequate and urgent response to this planetary emergency. And when we do, I, I do believe, uh, just to give another uh, pitch for, uh, for, for, for what uh, Cisco is doing here, I do believe that this technology is going to be one of those uh, new options that people are going to uh, enjoy using. To, um, uh, to, to John Chambers say, and ask you to uh, Mr. Gore has mentioned there the importance of this kind of technology. If you could broaden that out slightly, what role do you see technology business, technology industry, um, in, in fighting climate change in the future? Well, Lawrence, one of the things I think to keep in mind is over literally a century, there have been great leaders, and I consider the vice president to be a great leader, both on the political side, the technology side, and now perhaps the most important area, the fight for our planet's future. And uh, you can have a great leader who articulates views and brings us to focus on an item with statistics, not just emotional, but statistics that go with it, which are undeniable. But very often when that leader moves on to do something else, or people's attention ends up being on the other 20 priorities rather than number 24, the, we don't get the end results. What is different this time is there's a, several market transitions going on at the same time. And you've got to catch market transitions to really make a difference. Otherwise, it's like dealing with world hunger, the AIDS epidemic, job creation around the world for 3 billion people making less than $2 a day. And what is different this time is really the Internet. The Internet, with a whole bunch of technology tools like you're seeing today, lumped together in unified communications, which we announced our intent to play in at, at VoiceCom in 2006, suddenly can change the paradigm. It can address almost all these issues, ranging from education to health care, uh, to the ability to both have economic growth 
and do it in an environmentally responsible way and to dramatically reduce the emissions. And to back this up, if you watch the Internet during the 90s and through 2004, it changed the standard of living around the world. It grew productivity in the U.S. from 1% to 2%, which none of the economists, including Laura Tyson, who worked <coughs> for you, Mr. Vice President and President Clinton, thought could grow to 3 to 4 or 5% in terms of productivity, and yet we did as a country. And we did it by using these new technologies, entering orders online, serving customers online, core versus context. Now what you're about to see is the second wave of the Internet. That's going to be built around collaboration. Our kids this time invented it. It's going to come through social networking. It will be enabled, collaborations, co-labor of activity. It will be enabled by a bunch of network tools called Web 2.0 that include products like telepresence that suddenly will allow people to work together toward a common goal in ways they could not do before. And when you catch these transitions and approach it not as a box or as a product approach, but say, what is the vision of possible? We can dramatically reduce the emissions around the world and have sustainable economic growth of 3 to 5% in all the countries. That is a doable vision. But to do that, it's going to require a combination of creative ideas and people working together who traditionally have not. Government, business, NGOs, leading scientists, etc. And it's amazing when you put these people in the room and discuss it with each of us bringing strong points of view, but a willingness to say how do we collaborate to be able to make a difference. And that's what occurred, Mr. Vice President, uh, two years ago at the Clinton Global Initiative. I was on the stage with Vice President Gore, and if it's all right, I'll call you Al going forward. Yeah. And uh, the panel was, was really fired up on the environment. I just given what I thought was a very good speech about what Cisco was doing, how we were reducing our emissions. We we're going to reduce it by 25% as revenue, 11%. Uh, per employee, how we were going to use telepresence, cut the budget by $150 million, reusable uh, energy, we're number nine in the world uh, in reusable uh, energy, number one in the UK. And the vice president gave a very impatient speech about what needed to be changed and some aggressive statements about how business was not moving fast enough. I leaned back and said, Phew. now my other CEO colleagues are going to have to respond to that. And my other CEO colleague, when the moderator asked him, put his mic down on the floor, and clearly I was left hanging. <laughs> and I looked at that time, and suddenly the light bulb went off, is that it isn't about criticizing other people's ideas. It's about this is an undeniable problem that none of us can solve by ourselves. And only by bringing people with different views and passion together can you solve this problem. And the neat thing about it is as you solve it, you can get economic growth. Cisco can make profits, we can cut the emissions, and we know how to make dreams come true in Silicon Valley. But you cannot do it without government leaders, you cannot do it without a great leader uh, like Al articulating and carrying the patient, and at times getting criticism uh, because of the patient, which you have to do when you try to change things. And so I think we have a vision to change this, not just a idea with concepts, but it is the collaborative ability to no longer have to be in the same room to solve the problems, but to bring the power of the world leaders together, the business leaders together, the citizens and subject matter expertise in a way that's never been done before. So what you're seeing today is history. It is about changing the world, and it is about doing it and growing the economy in an economically and in a socially and environmentally responsible way. I do not think I'm underestimating that. And for those in the room that know Cisco, when we make these bold statements, we almost always deliver on it. It is a market transition that is undeniable with leadership that is committed, and together we are going to change it.
turn to uh, Orlando and to uh, Sue. This is a question that was um, uh, submitted from Mike here in London, who, who wants to know how the information technology industry uh, can do perhaps some of the things uh, that your CEO has just been talking about, but also how can it help to get people more involved in tackling climate change? Well, I'm sorry, Lawrence, I, I'm still a little stuck. I'm trying to figure out why am I the one that had to travel for this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and I'm fine with it, John. I really am fine. That's right. Your, your raise is still intact, I think. <laughs> but, but I'm sorry, Lawrence. Getting back to your question, you know, uh, back to some comments that both the Vice President and John both made. Uh, the great opportunity that we have is we have... Um, people, citizens, who are connected. And as John mentioned, via social networking and other tools, they want to get engaged in issues that they feel passionate about. I think we've seen that on so many recent issues that have been affecting the nation and the world. Uh, the great thing about collaborative capabilities is that it does allow you to do that real time and to share information. I think one of the things that we've seen at Cisco is that those answers don't necessarily come from all of the places that you exactly expect. Uh, we recently at the company have created something that we call an eco-board. It's a, it's a cross-functional team representing multiple functions across the company. About 15 to 20 individuals are involved. And it is so interesting to see where we're getting ideas in various pockets of just Cisco in terms of what we can do differently as a company not only in the way that we operate our business, but also in the types of products that we develop and then the types of ideas that we give to our customers. Uh, I think what we, the way we like to think about it as Cisco, as I mentioned to the audience here a little bit earlier, is that if it can be connected, it can be green. And I think historically we thought of that, well, if it's a device, then of course we can monitor and manage it. But it's also true with people. I think that when you make people aware of their energy consumption, when you make people aware of how they can change their lifestyle, they begin to understand what other people are doing, I think they can become green and they're happy to do so. The value of social networking, collaborative tools, all of these things is it allows our awareness to go up. And when that happens, we can create new ideas together. Well, a question from uh, raised by Alex in London, and this is a, a hoary old question that you all have heard before. Um, but still uh, an important one. I'll put it first to Mr. Gore, if I might. Uh, how do you think uh, of the roles of innovation on the one hand, as against regulation, industrial re regulating industry? How do they pan out when you're looking at the issue of climate change? Well, I, I think that they have to be... Uh, I, have, I think we have to have both, Lawrence. Um, I'm a big fan of innovation, and I, I, I think it will probably play the key role, but we need uh, regulatory and legal and policy uh, changes and even global treaties in order to establish rules of the road that are fair to, to the innovators in the sense that uh, they need a, um, a market that doesn't shut them out by massively subsidizing older legacy polluting technologies that are that have caused the problem and continue to add to the problem. Um, uh, I was just in India just uh, a few days ago uh, talking with uh, leaders of the government there, business leaders and, and others, giving my slideshow, training people to give my slideshow in the 14 different uh, official languages of India, uh, and 
they have a, um, a current uh, policy that subsidizes uh, the purchase of kerosene by people uh, throughout India uh, for, for their use as fuel. Well, uh, some of my uh, uh, fellow uh, environmental advocates over there have developed these fantastic solar uh, lanterns and solar cookers, and people prefer them when they can get them. But uh, if the government policy is to subsidize the dirtiest possible old carbon-based fuel, then that innovation, which is very attractive in a totally free market where everything's on a level playing field, has a hard time breaking into uh, the marketplace. So we really need uh, both innovation and policy changes. Um, here in uh, the United States, uh, we also subsidize carbon-based fuels. Uh, and some of the very attractive new technologies bear heavy front-end research and development costs. So uh, a tax credit for offsetting some of the R&D uh, expenses that we want to see going into the innovation really makes a, a lot of sense, in my opinion, uh, as a policy. Now, I, I do think that one other point on this, and it's a, it's a big subject and we can talk about it uh, usefully for quite a while, but I know our time constraints, so I'll just make one other point. CO2, the principal global warming pollution, is invisible, tasteless, odorless, and has no price tag, so it's invisible to the markets. As a consequence, it is not taken into account in the daily decisions that are made either by government or by business. Now, business, as I said, is ahead and they're beginning to, to, to proactively reduce CO2. But as consumers, each of us need a way to get a price signal uh, that will alert us to the CO2 uh, consequences of the choices we make. So I've advocated uh, a bold policy change that I think would unleash a lot of innovation uh, and it wouldn't raise taxes, the revenue would be neutral, but it would shift to the source of that revenue. Uh, and I know this sounds like a bigger idea than the political system can, can accommodate, but I really strongly believe the single best thing we could do in every country, and starting in the United States, is to reduce taxes on businesses and on employees and then replace every dollar of that revenue with pollution taxes, principally CO2 taxes, and have the transition uh, arrangements for those that uh, have adjustment costs, but have a revenue neutral approach that discourages what we want less of and encourages what we want more of. And if we put a price on carbon, it, it will require government and policy initiatives, but that would unleash the innovations for solar concentrating, uh, thermal electric power for photovoltaics, for wind energy small and large, for conservation and efficiency and uh, teleconferencing and the many information technology applications that uh, can reduce CO2. All of our choices would instantly be clarified if we put a price on carbon. I noticed uh, John Chambers, you were nodding your head very vigorously during most of that, especially when Mr. Gore raised the points about tax concessions on R&D costs of new technologies. I wonder if you would uh, give us uh, just a question asked uh, by Alex in London, some examples of technologies 
that can be developed uh, to tackle climate change. Yeah, I will. But Lawrence, I'm going to even start with a higher level principle because I think Al nailed it in the sense that as a country, we've got to say what is our overall goal, our vision of how we, what percentage we should reduce our emissions, whether you measure by employee or by business, etc. And then you've got to say to achieve that vision, whether you put out a five-year window or ten-year window, here's what the milestones are along the way. Then you explode it down to what are the key goals that we want to do over the next two to five years to accomplish that vision, put as many of them numerical as we can. Some of them can be done by private enterprise, some by uh, government, some by regulatory, and I actually think they've got to work together because otherwise we'll make mistakes along the way. And then you explode it down to what can we do in the next 12 to 18 months and the example of the investment tax credit for energy alternatives is very key. Our company started with three and a half million dollars of venture capital and we never used it. We used their expertise. But if you look at these new startups today, it's common to see two to three hundred million required for the startup before you know if they're going to be successful. So if you don't incent and leverage that, it's difficult to raise the capital to refocus on it and the jobs associated with it. Now to your specific question. If you watch, and just use Cisco as an example, once we were challenged by, by Al and candidly by President Clinton uh, on the economic and uh, emissions front, within two years, by using collaborative groups, which Sue said, we cut our emissions per employee by an average of over 10% on travel alone related and saved $150 million. We made our products often three to four times more energy efficient that we introduced and enabled that in the data center to make our peers' products, such as servers and storage, three to four times more effective. We did collaboration with groups I never would have thought of, Al, just two or three years ago. We worked with the mayors in Seoul and Amsterdam and in San Francisco because, as you know, 80% of the pollution comes from cities, even though it's only 50% of the population. You can't leave them out of this equation. And it isn't through regulation we did it. We said, how do we get together and solve this problem in a unique way? And the mayors, combined with Cisco and some other peers, all of a sudden you have green buses now being enabled in San Francisco. You have the technology that we're seeing today in Amsterdam enabling remote working locations, which of course we're going to bring all the way to the home and the masses. You have groups each bringing their expertise to solve the problem, not on a transactional level, but on a scale. Here's what we admit today, here's where we ought to be, and how do each of us play our role as individual groups and together to achieve those goals. This is very manageable. But it's all enabled by the network and this collaborative approach with Web 2.0 technologies. So it isn't about a technology or a silo. It's how do you do it in total. Once we start measuring it, hold ourselves accountable for it. We are a country that knows how to get results when we make up our mind. It's time to set goals and then determine what each one of our roles are. We'll probably argue out about back and forth on, on how we get there. But we'll arrive at a better solution than any one of us would have done our, our, ourselves. And it is because of collaboration, these tools, that this is now doable. If I would have presented this a decade ago, I would have said, great idea, great passion, you're right, but we can't solve it yet. People aren't ready, there isn't a market transition or inflection point occurring. Today, there's a transition point, people get it, the citizens around the world gets it. I talked to all the government leaders. This is on the front of their agenda. They've got to be careful politically when they present it. But if we lead in business, we take the lead on saying now's the time and show people what is the vision of what's possible and why it's different this time, and it will all be network enabled. That's what that conference at VoiceCom should be about. It's about unified communications 
changing the world, both productivity-wise, healthcare-wise, and the environment. That's uh, still a question here. This uh, actually comes to, uh, John mentioned, John Chambers mentioned Amsterdam, and this comes from, uh, this question comes from Thomas in Amsterdam. He wants to know, uh, from a business process perspective, uh, how does a company like Cisco uh, think about addressing its role in climate change? I, I mentioned a little bit earlier the concept of the eco-board, which I'll come back to. I, I wanted to just add, John, to your, to your ideas about innovation and technology. The one that I'm really excited about is this concept of connected real estate, where real estate developers are beginning to realize that it's not just the physical building, but how do you actually network it and allow it to run more efficiently um, to save energy, but also to save operating costs. So this is where we start to get the business goals and objectives, as the Vice President mentioned, connected with the environmental objectives. So I just wanted to add that point. Um, with regards to what do you do in a large company the size of Cisco, well, first of all, I, I can't emphasize enough how, how important it is to have senior leadership. Um, you know, when we say at Cisco that something is going to move to the top of our list of priorities and be one of the top corporate initiatives, um, it draws a lot of attention. So all those individuals across Cisco are thinking about those creative ideas. Now, back to your point about how do you operationalize this, this is why the Eco Board has been so important from our perspective, because they've actually laid out a vision of where Cisco wants to go, which I think John articulated, but also a strategy, and a strategy that includes both what are we doing operationally to be a more efficient company, second of all, what kind of a culture are we building across our employees for them to feel comfortable collaborating, to want to collaborate, to try to reduce travel expenses, to try to come up with better power-saving devices. Third, what kind of products are we developing? How can they um, help use energy more efficiently? And then I think most importantly is how can we build a network architecture, a network platform and solutions that allow our customers and governments to really embrace this technology um, for the reason of climate change and environmental impact. And that's really where developing these solutions, working these public-private partnerships, and developing solutions is really where I think, for a company like Cisco, the impact we have within our own walls will be important, but the impact we could have beyond and into the world could even be greater. You talk about the world, not just uh, the United States and Europe, because uh, I think one of the best questions that have been submitted comes from uh, Ward in, in Sofia in Bulgaria. Who asked this question, and it's a question that worries a lot of observers. Um, given the fact that China and India are developing so rapidly, are you optimistic? And I'll put this question to all three of you, to Mr. Gore first, if I may. Are you optimistic or pessimistic that uh, business, governments, <coughs> and citizens can still uh, do what we have to to put the planet onto a, an even keel, given that growth in, in a country like China? Well, I'm optimistic, but uh, my optimism is based on the assumption that we are continuing to move toward a political tipping point beyond which we will see a dramatic change in the pattern by that characterizes our response to this crisis. If I thought that the current rate of change was all we were going to have into the indefinite future, then I would be very pessimistic indeed. But I don't believe that. I, I have seen in 30 years of uh, politics and public life, I'm a recovering politician, by the way, on about step nine, uh, but I have seen during that period that there are times when polit the political system is uh, 
like the climate system, it's nonlinear, meaning, of course, that it can cross that tipping point. It can suddenly change and move with, with great speed. Um, I think we're getting closer and closer to that point. Some businesses have already reached that point, and they are finding, as John said earlier, that they're great collateral benefits. Pollution is waste. Waste is wasteful. Uh, when you eliminate the pollution, you become more efficient and more profitable. And uh, it doesn't always happen that easily, but more often than not, it does. And if it's approached in the right way, uh, that will happen. And we have no choice. We really have no choice. We have to find a way to move uh, together. You know, there's an old African proverb that says, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We have to go far, quickly. And that means we have to come together quickly. And this technology that's being demonstrated uh, here today and the various technologies that are being discussed at VoiceCon uh, represent important tools to allow people to come together quickly and easily in order to chart a course to go far toward the, the big changes that we need to make. Now, for China and India and the other developing economies uh, to vastly improve their prospects for changing, one thing is needed more than anything else. The United States of America, the largest economy, the most powerful nation, the natural leader in this world community, forgive me those in other countries if I found, sound overly prideful as an American, but I think all of those things can be uh, uh, demonstrated as objective facts. This nation, the United States, must provide leadership. And so long as the U.S. has been dragging our feet and even pulling the world back from the progress that's so greatly needed, then it lets China and India and every other nation off the hook. Uh, and, and so uh, we're moving, uh, and this is a presidential election year, as you may have heard. Uh, and uh, all three of the remaining candidates, uh, John McCain, uh, the Republican uh, nominee to be, uh, and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, the two remaining Democratic candidates, all three of them have positions very different from the current administration. The Congress is now moving rapidly. A dozen states have moved already on their own. Others are moving. More than 800 cities with Republican and Democratic mayors alike have independently endorsed and embraced the Kyoto Protocol. So the signs are very positive, but the path to change lies, goes, goes through the United States, a transition in January, uh, and then the negotiation that will take place in Poland this December and uh, Copenhagen <coughs> following December will complete a new treaty to follow the Kyoto Treaty and then we'll have in place uh, with U.S. participation and even leadership on this matter the kind of uh, worldwide effort that I think China and India are going to be uh, going to find irresistible. They cannot stand outside the global consensus. I believe that they will join when the United States leads. Let me ask uh, uh, John that as well. You have operations in, in, in China. Uh, do you see the, the growth of China? People talk about a new coal power station every week. Do you see what's happening there as a, a threat to a solution to climate, the climate crisis, or do you see it as an opportunity? 
Oh, I, I tend to be op, uh, opportunistic in terms of when I see market transitions occur. And I've been doing business in China for 22 years and have known the government leaders throughout that time period. And China is a very predictable society. I think they will become the largest economic power in the world. And I think as long as it's a fair policy that we do on a global basis, we can find a way for the largest players in this environment to all move toward a common goal. And that's the key. You can't have one or two move and others not move. To your question, however, is I've talked to the key leaders in Bulgaria and each of the Eastern European players. I've talked to the key leaders in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, Turkey, uh, Azerbaijan, Dubai. Uh, the leaders there are all for the first time. The environment is not only hitting the radar screen, they're becoming educated, but they also know this is doable without dramatically changing their economic growth. And so this is where the enabler, the tipping point, is unified communication, it is the internet, it is video capability where you can see eyeball to eyeball to move with speeds and get groups together that never could have come together before. Being very candid in a confession point of view, the environment would not have made my top three objectives for this year. But because we do collaboration, I can now do 20 major objectives this year where I could only do one or two in prior years. So this technology allows me to encompass a much larger range of objectives and can you bring the power of my whole company behind it in a way that I could not have done before. So I think that you will find that each of the leaders, if we get them talking together with some really knowledgeable people that know how to compromise and collaborate, we can solve this uh, between the various governments and the various business around the world. Having said that, there's also a huge economic cost, not just for the next generation. We will cause people to be sick. Healthcare costs alone, if you continue to pollute, will probably be more than the issues that we could have put in place to prevent the healthcare problems. So as people like Al and others educate us, we then have to present a vision of what's possible and find a way to do the end. Economic growth and a friendly environmental approach. And I think you can feel things start to build. We've got to have some leaders. Companies have to lead, and we have to have a couple countries lead. I think it would be great if you had perhaps the two greatest economic powers in the world, China and the U.S., and both lead in this area and say, let's show others how to do it. I think the Europeans are well on the way to doing it, and they kind of strike a balance between the regulation and the business in a way that's constructive. You see the emerging countries getting it. So I am the optimist of what can be done here. Okay, well, whatever the technology time is always the enemy, and I'd like to ask our guest of honor, Mr. Gorey, uh, as we're coming towards the end of this session, if uh, in a minute or so you could tell us what you think are the main lessons that we need to take from this kind of dis discussion. What, what do we need to do, both as individuals and as companies, to get things done in the future? I think we have to learn about this challenge and uh, recognize that we are, as uh, John Chambers said, at uh, an inflection point. We're in a business transition. Uh, we're, we're in an economic transition. We're in the midst of uh, a very powerful continuing globalization process uh, that often goes unmentioned today, but it's an underlying reality that's extremely powerful. Um, and the economy of the world is actually in the process of recarbonizing. That is, the use of coal and dirtier fuels is actually still increasing. That really uh, has to stop. And um, 
it will stop. Uh, there's an old economic saying, if something can't go on, it won't. Uh, and the question is how we make that transition. Um, I do think that uh, in addition to understanding it, we, we have to feel it. That may sound a little corny, but um, here's what I mean by it. We are naturally equipped as human beings to respond with urgency to certain kinds of threats that our ancestors encountered. But now that we're a global civilization and we face this unprecedented threat that can only be perceived and understood by connecting dots in a global pattern and then communicating about it, then the key challenge is communication uh, and collaboration. So it comes back to the kinds of uh, technologies and strategies we choose to, to work together on a global basis. Again, we have to put a price on carbon so that we're using the same kinds of measurements of value, the same perceptions of what uh, is needed, and it has to be a global solution. But um, in closing, for my part, uh, Lawrence, it is undeniably true that not too many years from now, uh, our children will ask one of two questions, and I don't know which one they'll ask. I know which one I prefer them to ask. Mm -hmm. But they could ask, looking at uh, the, all the ice gone and all the horrific consequences the scientists have long predicted, they could ask of us, what were you thinking? <laughs> How did you allow this to happen? Did, did you just decide to ignore the world scientific community when they were screaming from the rooftops with compelling evidence that that nobody could uh, could sustain a dispute to? Well, why didn't you act? Were you too distracted? Were you too interested in other things? How could you do this to us? Or they will ask a second question, the one I prefer them to ask. I want them to ask, how did your generation rise to meet this challenge that so many said was impossible to solve? And I think that part of the answer to that question is going to be, well, we found ways to work together and collaborate and share knowledge and uh, have discussions about the, the best strategies and we saw it was easier to solve than we thought and we cared enough about you to make the big changes that did look at, impossible at one time but when we analyzed them in a collaborative way we found that we, if we all did it together we could do it. And that's the inflection point that we're at right now. And we, ha we just have to find the moral courage and vision to do the right thing. Never the technology, however, this has been an amazing experience for me as a broadcast journalist to sit in a room here five, ten miles outside London and be connected in such an intimate way with uh, people in, across the world is, is just uh, astonishing. But the clock still ticks, um, and there's one thing we can't turn back uh, is time. And I'm going to hand over now to uh, Sue in Orlando uh, to close this session. I think we've all seen here today the role that collaborative technologies can play in really allowing us to have face-to-face -face discussion and debate around not just business issues, but some of the most important global issues that we face as a world. I think the question is, is what do we do for those of us that are related to technology and really understand the possibilities of collaboration? We do have the opportunity to build out technology and business architectures, those architectures that can be the foundation for our organizations. And I think the question that faces us is, do we work now to plant those technology seeds, to build out those capabilities in the organizations and the communities that we work with, 
so that we can bring the discussion to the forefront, we can bring the dialogue, and as the Vice President said, we can commit both to our companies but also to our children that we will be part of the change and we will be part of making it better. So I'd like to thank all of you that have been participating around the world. Of course, Vice President Gore, John, Lawrence, thank you for your moderation. And thank you to all of you in Orlando for making this such a great session. Thanks again. Bye, John. Bye, Sue. Wow, thank Lawrence. You. Sue, thank you, Lawrence. Right. Thank you. Yeah.